You may want to, if you are using a Bible, uh, although it will be on the screen, you may want to turn to Exodus chapter 20. And if you are new to us today, can I say that um, we're starting a series on the Ten Commandments this term. I did an introductory talk last week, just trying to contextualize it and frame it for us. And this week we're diving in and looking at the first commandment. And so there's not a very long reading at all. It's Exodus chapter 20 and really verse 1, 2, and 3. So let me read that for us. God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. I wonder what is your view of God Uh, Perhaps to put it slightly differently, can I ask you, what is your view of ultimate reality? Everybody has a doctrine of God, even if it's the negative doctrine that he doesn't exist. And your doctrine of God, your doctrine of ultimate reality, will influence what you love and how you live. If your ultimate reality is that there is no God, then all you are left with is materialism, the, the view that all that exists is matter and time, it's the material world, only that which you can see. And if that is your ultimate reality, and you behave consistently with that, then this life is all that there is, and it is self-delusional to ever hope in any kind of eternal life or future. Whatever your view of God, if you are consistent, it will radically affect the way you live and behave. If we are here only as a result of time plus chance, then life essentially is tragic. Human life would have no more value intrinsically than a jellyfish or a cockroach. And if we are consistent, then we should accept survival of the fittest. We should put down anyone who is no longer useful to society or who is putting strain on the resources of society. And if a whole country or a whole region we're putting strain on resources, we ought not to hesitate to go in with superior technology and wipe them out. If our ultimate reality were just our physical environment, then there would be no basis for justice and no basis for morality. If I can steal your car and get away with it, then good luck to me, it is survival of the fittest. And yet, none of us actually lives like that, not even people who are self-confessed Atheists, we do value human life, even people who are no longer economically useful to society. We love them and we care for them and we want our children to know them like our aging parents. Deep down, usefulness or utilitarianism is not the most important thing in any of our lives, even if we claim to be atheists. We send aid to regions that are poor, or who have been hit by a natural disaster, and we would be appalled if they were simply wiped out. And we are naturally and instinctively highly conscious of justice. If our car is stolen, we feel violated, it is wrong, and we want justice to be done. Now today we are looking at the first commandment, which is all about the great and lofty subject of God. And we need to be humble when we study God, for God is not a laboratory rat, nor a specimen in a petri dish who needs to submit to our scrutiny and experiments. He cannot be treated as anything other than our supreme Lord, 
our ultimate reality. And so I want you to notice three things with me about this first commandment. The first is, he is the God of infinite power. I am the Lord your God, is what he says as he opens the Ten Commandments. Consider the infinite power of the Lord. The Israelites would have been very aware of that infinite power, for they had just come through the ten plagues um, that God had sent against Pharaoh. It's interesting that Jesus thought that God's power was infinite and unlimited. In Mark chapter 14, uh, Jesus is praying in Gethsemane the night before his death, and he says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. Everything is possible for you. 600 years earlier, Jeremiah the prophet, faced with an apparent contradiction of God's word to him, which said, I'm both going to destroy Jerusalem, but also restore it. And Jeremiah can't work out how God is going to do both. And he says, our sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Later on in the same chapter, God himself speaks and says, I am the Lord, in verse 27, the God of all mankind, is anything too hard for me? And that is consistent with the whole teaching of the Bible. If you believe in God, it's not difficult to see his power. The power of God is seen in what he has done in the world. With the plagues, the Israelites uh, have had a front seat watching God's awesome power over creation. Um, he, he can change the properties of water from water to blood in the Nile River, remember? He commands the weather to bring hailstones, which were so big that they killed the cattle of the Egyptians. He is the God who commands insects like the locusts and the gnats and amphibians like the frogs. His infinite mind controls absolutely all the time every detail of created things. As the creator, he is before all things in time. He is free from the limitations imposed on us bodily creatures by space and time. He is able to exert his power anywhere and everywhere for however long he chooses. The consistent view of the Bible is that God is a mighty king, the sovereign Lord, there is only one God and he has no rivals. Whatever he wills comes to pass and nothing comes to pass except what he wills. His will is unopposed and cannot be defeated. Things only happen because God wills them to happen. We speak about the laws of nature. Those laws are only in place because God has put them in place and moreover, he upholds and maintains those laws. The Bible tells us of a God who knows when a common sparrow falls to the ground. He has an infinite and omnipotent control over every creature that he has made, over every plant and breeze, and even knows how many hairs are on your head, which is easier in some cases. In 2019, in the Usambara Mountains of Tanzania, the world's most endangered tree was discovered for the first time in history. 
It's called the Zono Zono tree. It grows to 20 meters. And to our knowledge, there are only seven on the planet. It was discovered for the first time in 2019. What has it been doing all this time? It's been delighting God. For it's his tree and his idea. And he has been enjoying it all this time. And in 2019, he decided to share his joy with the world. He is the sovereign Lord over all that he has created. Creation is for God. He is at the center of everything. The world and its existence is all for God and his glory. He has made everything to bring himself glory. He sits astride everything. He controls everything. He is Plato's first cause and Aristotle's unmoved mover. Without him, there is nothing. He is the center of life. You have to know him. There's nothing more important than knowing God, the great sovereign Lord over all things. But you know, you can only know him if he chooses to reveal himself to you. And that is what this verse speaks to. I am the Lord, your God. He says, we saw earlier in the book of Exodus that that was said on the day that Moses went to the burning bush. Do you remember? And Moses says to God, after God tells him to go and tell Pharaoh to let his people go, he says, who should I say has sent me? What is your name? And God says, my name is the Lord, Yahweh. And so he has revealed himself to Moses. The only way to know the great God, you can see the effects of God if you look rightly at creation, but the only way to know the God who stands behind his creation is if he chooses to reveal himself, which he did in Exodus chapter 3. He revealed himself to Moses and the Israelites through the words, I am the Lord your God, which we encounter here again in the first commandment. For us, though, he has revealed himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember these words from Jesus in John chapter 14 and verse 9? Jesus said to him, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He is the God of infinite power over creation, who has graciously revealed himself. But secondly, he is also, he's not only the God of creation, the God of supreme power, but he is also the God of salvation. He is the God who brought the Israelites out of slavery. He is the God who is into freedom from slavery, the God of gracious salvation. What do you think of when you think about slavery? My hunch is that most of us think about the transatlantic slave trade, don't we, of the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. We think of chains and whips and hard labor. And when we think of that, we really do not associate ourselves with that. It's hard for us to accept the Bible's view that we are slaves because we don't think of ourselves in terms of that kind of slavery. We don't feel like slaves. Most of us feel free, but the Bible's view is that we are slaves. In fact, it's Jesus' view. Look at John chapter 8 and verse 34 that should be on the screen. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Do you know, friends, that includes me and it includes you and it includes Matthew, 
who we baptized. Anybody who sins is a slave to sin. And look at how Peter puts it in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 19. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. It's a good definition of slavery, that, isn't it? Whatever has mastered you is really your master, your Lord. What has mastered you? Pride, materialism, pornography, alcohol, substance. And even if we aren't classic addicts, we are nevertheless addicted to sin. Let me show you this. You know, you can't even live up to your own moral standards for yourselves, and nor can I. I fail to live up to the inner ideal which I have for myself, how I'd like to think, how I'd like to act, how I'd like to speak. I had a friend once, a non-Christian friend that I was chatting to, and I made this point to them. I said to him, if I was to challenge you just for one week, just one week starting now, to not say, think, or do anything contrary to your own ideal for how you would like to think, speak, and act. How long do you think you would last? And he was honest. He said, I wouldn't get out of this room. That's true, isn't it? We can't keep up with our own standards. Can you imagine how far short we fall of God's standards? But, dear friends, God is a savior he loves to free slaves. The very first major salvation event in the Bible is the Exodus, the freeing of slaves. And that is the template for all salvation in the Bible. You and I need to be freed from our slavery, from our addiction to sin and to its consequences. He rescued his people Israel and he invited them to be his bride. He rescued them, we saw last week, from something, slavery, but also for something, relationship with himself. Today, he has provided the rescue for people who are enslaved to sin and death through the Lord Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross, where he decisively deals with sin and its consequences. He cancels our sin. He satisfies his own righteous wrath. He defeats death and he frees us, not just from the consequences of sin, but also from its power over us. And he draws us into friendship with himself, as we saw last week, into covenant. Remember, the Ten Commandments is God establishing a covenant with the people of Israel. Last week we learned that the Ten Commandments takes the shape of ancient covenants in that society in the ancient Near East. And so God is establishing relationship and formal covenant and agreement with his people, the Israelites, as he issues the Ten Commandments. But he also wants that with us, not just with the Israelites thousands of years ago. And he does it through the Lord Jesus Christ today. He draws us into that relationship and into that covenant. Are you part of that covenant, I wonder? You shall have no other gods but me. I want you to notice thirdly and finally that he is also the God of holy jealousy. This command, 
comes first, for it is of primary importance. It is the basic, basic building block of all of ultimate reality. It's repeated and developed in chapter 34, which you'll see on the screen in a moment, of Exodus chapter, chapter 34 and verse 14, where God says, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. I wonder if you've noticed, if you noticed in the commandment, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Did you notice that it doesn't say there is only one God? And you, it says you shall have no other gods before me. Well, how many gods are there, I wonder? Well, there is one and there is no other, according to the Bible. That is in keeping with the reality of the universe. But on the other hand, the Bible speaks about many gods. Of course, not real gods, but many things that people worship as God. In the ancient Near East, it was quite obvious. It was Molech, the god of the Canaanites, who required your firstborn to be thrown live into a roaring fire. Imagine that. Matthew being thrown into a fire. It's unthinkable. And yet that is what the pretend God, Molech, demanded from his worshippers. For some, even today, it's still lumps of wood and clay. I wonder, for Stellenbosch, what are the gods? What are those false gods that occupy our hearts? Is it education or success or status or financial security or family or happiness. John Calvin said, our hearts are idle factories. Anything that is a good gift from God, like love and money and affirmation and leisure and sport and children, any of those good gifts can become ultimate things in our lives. Whatever is of ultimate importance to you, that is your God. It's the thing that you think about most, that you daydream about most, that you sacrifice for most, that you orbit your life around. And do you know that the New Testament recognizes that idolatry is a very current issue? 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 14, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Let's not think that we are too sophisticated to engage in idolatry today. It is alive and well, and it exists in our hearts, and none of us is ever a big step away from it. This commandment really is as relevant today as it ever has been. We need to keep hearing it. We need to keep repenting of breaking it. And we need to train our hearts to accept its truth. But there is something else that I want you to notice with me. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. What does it mean to have God? I wonder. I could understand it if it said, you shall love no other gods but me. Or you shall serve no other gods before me. But it says, you shall have no other god before me. Well, I suppose if your God is a statue, then you have it in the sense that you own it and you polish it and you offer it fruit and flowers and you clean it and you put it back in the cupboard when you're done with it. 
I suppose that's having a God. If it's an idea, like an ideal, uh, or perhaps an image that you have of yourself, then you nurture it, and you hone it, and you develop it, and you indulge it, and you go to gym for it. That's having a God. Each of us has something. You can't have nothing. And what your God is determines what your God requires and what it means to have God. And if you have a false God, believe me, you will pay your dues. False gods always require, some, require something and you will pay for it. But what does it mean to have Yahweh, the true and living God? Well, I was thinking about that this week and then I realized that there's another context where we speak like that. I grant, take you, Lilibet, to be my wife, to have and to hold. Isn't that beautiful? It's exactly the language of the marriage ceremony. God comes down to Sinai in cloud, in thunder, in lightning, blindingly holy, terrifyingly unapproachable, and he says, have me as your God. Marry me. Commit yourself to me. Can you see that we are being called in this commandment to enter into permanent relationship with the great God who made the heavens and the earth in the same way that the marriage ceremony calls us to be committed to one another. We are being called to be committed to God and no other, no other God. You shall have no other gods before me. The first time that God came down to his bride at Sinai was absolutely terrifying. But God came down a second time. He came in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who in Mark chapter 2 calls himself the bridegroom. He too wants you. He wants your heart. He wants your worship. He is not unapproachable. He is full of grace. And he calls you this morning to have him. That is to embrace him, to worship him, to enthrone him, and to orbit your life around him. The commitment that Jesus calls us to is to treat him as God, the one and only. Have you done that? Are you doing that? For if you are like me, I have to keep reminding myself that Jesus is the center and not me. It's an ongoing daily exercise. And so, friends, can I speak to you? If you are not a Christian this morning, how wonderful that you are here. I'm so glad that you're here. You need to know God. The way to know God is to come to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would love to help you with that if you'd like to take that further. If you are a Christian this morning, and I know that many of you are, will we obey the first commandment and have no other God but God? Now will you bow with me as we pray. 
I'm just going to give you a moment of quiet reflection, just to think about anything that you may have heard this morning. Perhaps you want to make a response in the privacy of your own heart to God. Father, thank you so much that you have revealed yourself to us, that though you are the all-powerful, sovereign, omnipotent Lord, that we can approach you without fear, that you have made yourself supremely approachable by sending your Son into the world to reveal you to us. And we pray this morning that you would help us to make a right response to your dear Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.